early in my freshman year at the University of Alabama, I was told of a high school senior in Tuscaloosa who at least a couple of my friends thought that I ought to invite out on a date. I asked about her, of course, and was told that she was one who loved the Lord and was a strong, growing Christian. I was told that she was a very attractive girl, and uh, just everything I heard sounded as if maybe this was something that would be fun, and so I agreed to have this date set up, a blind date as we would call it, and uh, we would double date with these friends. Well, when we met one another, everything that I had been told of her, I found to be true. She was uh, a spiritual girl. She was a very, very attractive girl, much prettier than, uh, than I would have imagined, just a very attractive girl. And, and so uh, we had a very good time together that evening. That night, we found out that she had some very close relatives that lived in my hometown, and she told me that within a couple of weeks, and she named the date, that she was going to my hometown and would be spending the weekend. I had plans to be home that same weekend and I said, well, would you like to go out on Saturday night? I thought it would be fun. It was early in the year and it was in uh, a time that uh, we could go to a ball game on Saturday evening and I thought this will be great. I can show all of my peers left at high school that uh, this is the routine, typical type of beautiful girl that I attract. Little to know that would be my only date that year. But anyway, <laughs> she said, that'd be great. Well, why don't we do it? And so she gave me the address where she would be staying, and we were out of touch until that weekend when I was to pick her up on Saturday evening at a designated hour. Well, that morning, Saturday morning, I thought, you know, I, I'm not familiar with this uh, part of town where she's staying, and maybe I best just scope it out to make sure I know how to get there so that evening I wouldn't be late, and I had nothing really pressing that day, so I got in my car, and I found the address, and as I drove by, I noticed a, a, uh, a girl out in the front yard of this home and playing with a few little children out there, and I drove by slowly, and I looked, and I said, she looks familiar. And as I looked a little closer, I thought, I think this is the same girl that I went out with. But it had been a few weeks, and when I had met her, she had been, you know, very attractively dressed and prepared, makeup and all the things that women do. And, and I, you know, I looked at her and I said, man, this girl looks so different. And so when she saw that it was... Me driving by, you know, she spoke, and I got out, and we talked for a few minutes, and I, I would think she would have had to have read my mind, uh, maybe through the staring, you know, as I kept <laughs> looking at her, thinking, same voice, different body, just didn't look the same. And what I found in reality was a very plain-looking, if not unattractive, girl when she was not made up. And as I said goodbye, I'll see you tonight, I drove home thinking, how can I get out of this date? <laughs> I thought, did I just see her wrongly the first time? I thought, it can't be this great a discrepancy between two looks. And I thought, I don't figure this one out, but I was a little nervous about taking her out among my friends that night. After all, it could hurt my reputation. Now, let me say at this point, 
I understand that this story puts me at great disfavor with many of our women here who are rightly disgusted with my warped values. I understand that. (laughs) But trust me, it makes for a great illustration. (laughs) So that night I picked her up, and I guess to anyone of my friends who were to see her that night, they would have seen her with the same beauty that I did the night that I had met her. But I couldn't see her that way anymore. I saw her differently. I couldn't help it. Now the question, would I then take her out again? I married her. No, it's not Carol. I'm just, I'll get in trouble for that one, see. She's not in this service, and this is our secret, okay? Just a little joke. Just a little joke. Nothing more. The truth of it is, I never did ask her again. Never saw her again. Don't remember her name. Because I saw something so different than what I had anticipated, and it kind of was a letdown. Well, what we're going to be studying today is a personified love relationship that on the outside looks so very, very attractive. But as we really get to see her, we see that from the inside, this woman is as ugly as sin, literally. She's called the harlot, the great harlot, Babylon, Babylon the great, has different names. Let me just explain why that name. The word harlot refers to that which allures and tempts and seduces, in this sense, away from the things of God, away from God himself. Babylon was a worldly city of the day that was known and recognized by the readers of John in the book of Revelation as he writes about this person the harlot or Babylon. It would be much like we would talk about Las Vegas, Atlantic City, city life, the glitter, the glamour, the riches. And so we're talking about here the anti-Christian world system found in the love of riches and pleasure. Let me say that there would be many in the interpretation of the book of Revelation that would start identifying all the figures and symbols and the descriptions of of, uh, monstrous type of images to be individual people and so forth through history. I suggest that you abuse the Word of God greatly when you do that. This is a picture book. It's made up of symbols and stories that help us see in a broader perspective that which doesn't exist just in one person's lifetime but in all Christians' lifetime. And so here's the story of Revelation from the first coming to the second coming of Christ and we're told that there's one that exists throughout that period known as the harlot, Babylon the Great. And we're referring to that which seduces us, the lust and pleasures of the world, good things and bad things that show themselves to be the answer to life that Satan would use to draw us from a love relationship with the only true source of hope in life, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you have been with us in the study previously, you would know that Satan has three allies, and this, the harlot, is one of three allies. The other is called the beast, sometimes referred to as the sea beast, sometimes known as the scarlet beast. But the beast simply referring to the power structures, the anti-Christian system of thinking and living that the evil one uses explicitly 
particularly that which is expressed through the power structures, governments, for instance, who rule against the church and who try to hinder the work of the gospel, the good news of Christ, whether they be leaders or government, power structures and commerce, but that anti-Christian system that exists in the world in which we live. Now, the other ally we have already introduced, the false prophet, and we're talking about the false religious systems, the philosophies of the world where religion and morality are used to distract people from the true and living God. That's why we can say one of the, the greatest enemies of the church is certain parts of the church. Because that which says you're fine, you're religious, you're moral, but not giving Christ is the great counterfeit of the truth. So here are the three allies. And so today we're talking about the demise of the first of those three allies. And this one is the harlot. Now I want to say before we get into a rather long text that I run a great risk here. I have labored as best I know how to avoid the downfall of too much scripture, too much detail that we miss the big point. You have an outline before you, and I know as a communicator that I have violated some very important principles. When you see the amount of lines, subpoints, and fill in the blanks that you have here, this is asking for trouble in communication. And I know that, but I can't find a way to meet the balance of our need. You see, all of us here greatly need to see the big picture. I don't really care whether you miss some of the detail. It really does not bother me much. It's the big picture that counts. And so, what I'm going to do is to try to give you the big picture, and I'm going to walk through each piece of the outline first and tell it to you in a statement or two. That's the big picture. Then, for those that really want to see the Scripture of how that really looks in detail, we'll look at it, but I will not go into describing all the detail. We will never see the big picture. And so, take your outline in hand, if you will. And it begins with the vision of the beast and the harlot. And so for you who fill in blanks, here it is. Number one, the invitation to see the vision, and that's nothing more than a call to John to say, come, see the harlot. See her as she is. And then secondly, the description of the vision. That's all this is going to be. It's not a huge amount of important things to understand or interpret. Now, the description, so you will get the big picture, is that of a very beautiful woman. This is Babylon the Great. She is made up. She's dolled up. She's got on her makeup. She's got on her finest clothes. She's holding a golden cup, and she looks so inviting and attractive. But we're going to find out that in that cup is some pretty vile things. We will find that she's riding the beast. Now, this is not a a true literal beast, as we've already said, representing the, the power structures of society and the world throughout the history, that which is aligned with the evil one. And we're going to see that the harlot and the beast are very closely connected. They always are. In fact, she is serving the beast under the domain of the evil one. And we'll see that this beast has seven heads and ten horns. That's going to be very difficult to really understand in detail. But just so you know, seven heads, ten horns. 
Now, let's look at the verses first under the, um, the vision itself being announced. The invitation to see the vision, verses 1 and 2, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters and whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now let's look at the description itself. The interpretation now will come later, so don't, don't look for the interpretation yet. Just the description. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. If you would re remember, if you've been with us in the past, the wilderness referring to where the church had to flee. It's the world in which the church exists. And I saw a woman, there's your harlot, sitting on a scarlet beast, there's the beast, full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. Now the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Upon her forehead, and not literally as a physical true identity, but on her forehead, a name was written. This is just identifying who she is. It's a mystery. Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Meaning so vile, what a mystery, so vile but so beautiful, so bad but so good, how can it be? And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus and when I saw her, I wondered greatly. We'll understand that with the last verse of our text today. Now, I want to move to the interpretation of the vision without lingering longer. The history of the beast will be covered first. And what you're going to see of the history of this beast, it's described that the beast was and is not and is about to be. Now, since you all already understand that, we'll move on. Well, obviously, it's a difficult thing to understand. Unless you've seen the big picture, do you remember, if you've been here in the study of the keys to unlocking Revelation. The storyline is this, that before the cross of Jesus Christ, Satan and his allies have had freedom to deceive all the nations except for one, and that's the Jewish people. That's why when you read the Old Testament, you see that the Jewish people were favored and following God, but all the other peoples of the world, they were not as national peoples. Then at the cross of Jesus Christ, that changes, and we read that now Satan is bound for a thousand years. Not a literal thousand years, a figurative term to express the time between the first and the second coming of Christ at the end. And that now the evil one bound from doing one thing, and that is bound from deceiving all the nations they have been deceiving. Now the gospel is going to go out to the whole world and peoples from all peoples, tongues, nations, tribes, languages, they're going to come to faith in Christ. That's why you and I, most of us here, Gentiles, are in faith in Christ if we are. It's the work of the cross that now goes out, the gospel to all people. But the storyline goes on to say that this will happen until the very end and for a very short season, then the evil one, bound, sealed in the abyss, will be let loose 
So as it might appear as if, once again, deceiving all the nations as if the church's life will be ended or at least put to near death, if not full death. And then comes the end as Christ returns. Great story. And so he was before the cross. He is not now. And he will be for a short season as he's released. There's the description of the history, interpretation of the history of the beast. Then you have seven heads. And all I want to say about this is think of this as world empires. And we would gain that, though never to be dogmatic on some of these de details, certainly. But based on the study of Daniel and chapter 2 and other, we would think that this is referring to world powers, empires, the seven heads. Then ten horns... Lesser powers, lesser power structures that exist for a much shorter period of time, kind of come and go, ten, a representative number as all numbers are. And then the many waters, we will see referring to many different peoples, the people that turn away from Jesus Christ. Now, let's read it with that just broad overview, big picture of interpretation. The history first. Verse 7, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is and will come. So we'll move down to the seven heads. Verse 9 through 11, here's the mind which has wisdom. In other words, this is going to be difficult to understand. He admits it. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. That's one way of thinking about what these heads represent. Another way to describe it, they're seven kings or kingdoms. And then it says five have fallen, one is... The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the term little while is used elsewhere to refer to the rest of time, not necessarily only a few days or months as we might think of them. Now, I won't read 11 yet, but let me suggest where it says seven kings, five have fallen. Probably, again, based on Deuteronomy's reference to the, the empires that existed with the same monstrous type head talked about there, and probably this is the same usage, terminology, referring to the five great empires, the world empires that were set against the things of God, beginning with Old Babylon, Assyria, New Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greco-Macedonians. And then it says, and one is Rome, the one that's existing right now, the power structures of Rome, putting many Christians to death, and then I think it becomes far more complicated. And I don't want to go through all the different answers that could mean because I'm not sure myself and we would make no progress probably to go through all of them. But it says, and verse 11, and the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Let's not even deal with it, okay? The ten horns. Verses 12 through 14, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. 
who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, meaning a short period of time. They come and go. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb. Kids, that's Christ. Remember that? And the lamb will overcome them because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So these would be lesser powers, not the heads themselves, but the horns that come out of them. Within the world powers that exist, the lesser powers that are real and aligned with the evil one. The many waters become very clear here as it says in verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And referring again to those who are set against the things of God. So there is what we would call the interpretation of that text. Now, we get to the real heart of it all, and this is the downfall of the harlot. And again, so you can fill in the blanks, let's just take the first portion of this, verses 15 through 18. We see first in the description of the harlot's fall, the friends first that turn into enemies, and then the hand that engineers the event. We're going to see three friends of the harlot that are going to become in time enemies. These three friends will be, first of all, the many waters, the worldly peoples of life. Uh, it will secondly refer to the beast upon which she sits even is going to turn on her, the power structures that exist, and then the persecuting powers it's all going to turn on her these three we'll see them in just a second the ten horns representing the mighty and then the beast the persecuting power so worldly people ten horns and the beast are all going to turn on her in time the big question that we have to answer is this why do they turn let me tell you why they turn because there will come a time when they are going to realize, maybe before the end of time, by the grace of God, and if not, they'll see it at the very end to say, you have duped me, you told me, harlot, that if I drank of you, if I partook of you, if I let you seduce me, if I bought your goods, if I got involved in your world system of seduction, that I would be fulfilled, I would be happy, I would be content, and what I have now realized is you kept me from the true love of loves to be able to meet Almighty God and to know the marriage with the Lamb. You were a harlot to me. You weren't the true love of life that you presented yourself to be. And I hate you for it and I'll turn on you for it. That's literally what's being taught. And then it follows with the hand that engineers the event. It's God himself. God wants to see the kingdom of Satan divided. You remember what Jesus said? A kingdom divided against itself will fall, and boy, he's engineering the fall right now. And ultimately, at the end, that fall is going to take place in permanence. And so, we read the text. The friends that turn into enemies, verse 15, are the many waters, the peoples. Then verse 16, and the horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. 
the hand that engineers it, 17 and 18, for God has put in their hearts to execute his plan by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, next, if you look at your outline again, you see the certainty of the harlot's fall. And the subpoints there would be filled in the announcement of this certainty and then the implication the implications for believers and the announcement is basically going to be Babylon has fallen past tense though certainly the very last fall has not taken place but it's so certain it's put in a past tense form and then the implications for the believers is going to be very important for you and me Christian because it is the message Come out from her. It's one thing if the world says, yes, world, you're beautiful. Your world system, anti-Christ, yeah, it's good. I like it. All the things that can, can convince me that life has meaning if I have you, good things and bad things alike, that are used of the evil one to seduce me, certainly, as a Christian, I shouldn't fall in love with a harlot when I've got the greatest, the greatest love relationship I could ever have with Almighty God. That's the big picture. But it reads as follows. We're now in chapter 18. The first few verses, the announcement of the certainty. After these things, I saw another angel. It talks about the earth illumined by it. And then verse 2, and he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then some other detail that we will not walk through in detail. Then we come to the implication for believers. Let's just look at verse 4 and 7. Verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven, and it said, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive of her plagues. Verse 7, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. In other words, when she comes up and she says, Buy me, I'll make you happy, love me. I'll give you life, enjoy me, caress me. I'll show you what I can give to you. When she does that, you just, Christians, say to her, out of my face, I don't want you. You repulse me. Your beauty is just, it's just so veneer. I know what's behind it all. You're not going to seduce me. I know better. Christian, come out, as it says. Paul, the apostle, says the very same thing in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 17 of that chapter, therefore come out from their midst. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean and I will welcome you. Then we come to the lamenting of the harlot's fall. Some people are going to be devastated when the harlot is now to be fallen because they are really still in the peak of enjoying what the harlot can offer. I tell you young people, is it fun to get drunk? Now, I don't know in that I have never been drunk, but I would assume it is or people wouldn't be doing it. 
Can it be a high for a moment? Yeah. Can drugs give you a high? Sure it can. Can it dull pain? Sure it can. Let's not be denialist. But does it ultimately satisfy? No, it doesn't. And so here, some are going to say, well, I'm still enjoying her. She's fun. And now she's taken away. They lament. Notice how this lays out in your outline. The lamenting of the kings, 9 and 10, that's going to talk about the powers, those in authority who have the right to kind of say, harlot, you're mine, come here, I got you. And then we'll see the merchants, the lamenting of the merchants. Now, they don't have such authority, but they can sure buy the wares of the world. They can purchase the harlot as they need her. And so the lamenting of the kings, verses 9 and 10, verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Look at verses, or verse 11 and 15. We see the merchants. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. The merchants, verse 15, of these things who become rich with her, from her, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe is the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Jeremiah talks about the cisterns and and how they're cracked and they hold water and some have the water in it and and all of a sudden the water is now taken away and it's before it's seeped out to find out that it really doesn't last they're going to lament those that find out no it's broken and I mean there's nothing to be held and this is just an illusion of life they're going to turn and hate the harlot and then it This section ends with the permanence of the harlot's fall. And this is very intriguing. If you fill in the blanks, the harlot will be no more first in verse 21, which is a broad general statement of the harlot's being taken away and it's going to be now destroyed. But then musicians will be no more. And that's going to be referring to entertainment, which no longer satisfies. And then next, craftsmen. And mills, we would think of it as employment. We would think of it as careers will no longer satisfy. Some of us here are finding our satisfaction through our career. That's our hope. Next, the lamp's light will be no more. In other words, the city lights are going to go out. Las Vegas, with all the flashing lights and all the invitations to come and enjoy, they're gone. It's shut down now. Where do you get your high now? And then lastly, the voice of the bride and groom will be no more. Relationships will no longer satisfy. It's just saying, look, I don't care what form or expression. If your particular harlot is material things, it will not forever satisfy. One lady after the last service said to me, says, you know, this really makes sense now why we're always wanting to shop all the time and buy things. We've already bought the same things. We're buying new ones because the old ones don't satisfy anymore, do they? Say, no, they really don't. 
Nothing wrong with things, nothing wrong with buying things, but if you're doing it in the search for satisfaction of life, let me tell you, it will not, it will not work. Young people, kids, youth, hear it now. Don't miss it. You'll be duped and you'll be one day one of those that say, no, no, no. You caused me to miss the great love of life. And you were nothing but a lie. Tell her now. Say, get out of here. I don't want you. You do me no good. So I don't even think we need to read the particular verses. They say just basically referring to the harpist and musicians or the craftsman and the craft or whatever it may be. They simply say they will be no more. They're taken away. She's dead now. And that's the final fall of Babylon when Christ comes again. As we'll see over and over, the end of every section ends with just that, the great destruction. But there's one verse left. I've entitled it The Autopsy of the Harlot. She's dead. In verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. I think what this is suggesting is that many like you and Lord willing like me and throughout the history of the church are going to say, uh-uh, harlot, in your face, no more. I will not have you. I will not engage in seeking you for satisfaction. I won't do it. And in some people's situations, even today, and in fact more so today than ever in the history of the world, people are losing their life because they will not embrace the harlot. Live with the world, embrace her ways, and let me tell you, the power structures will say, fine, you're okay, you're a good citizen of our land. But you stand up for Christ, we'll take your life. And so as you do the autopsy of the great harlot, there's the blood of the saints. She ate them alive. Yeah, she'll do it. She'll do it. She'll bring you down. But in favor with the king of kings. And if that's the way you go, that's okay. That's the story. It's the demise of the harlot. The big picture. There is an attractive world out there aligned with the evil one that wants to seduce us and say, here is what gives satisfaction of life. And God's word says, don't buy it for a minute. Get rid of her because she has fallen She's as good as gone now, and if you love her, you are missing out on the true love of life, living with your true God. Now, with that, I would like to simply conclude with an illustration, a quote, and a poem of all things. Don't use many, but this one a good one. First of all, the illustration. There are a few here old enough to remember the old Geritol commercials. Good-looking woman in blue jeans sits there in front of the camera, and she straightens out her hair, and she looks into the camera. And she says, you know, when you have your health, you have just about everything. Is that true? Tell me this. How valuable is your health when you're standing over the grave of your child? How valuable is your job, your career, your material possessions, 
when you're so depressed you can't enjoy them? Really, how important are they? How important are those things that the harlot comes to us through so many different expressions? How good are they when you're laying in your own grave? None whatsoever. Why do we give so much attention and time to it? I don't know what the expression would be in your life. They're different in all of our lives. For some, it may be material possessions. For some, it may be a lower golf handicap. For some of us, it may be simply another person in our life that we want to introduce in a new relationship. I don't know what it is. But let me tell you, if we look to it for our satisfaction, we lose. And so the quote, it goes like this. Herodotus claimed that the bitterest sorrow a man can know is to aspire to do much and to achieve little. Not so. The bitterest sorrow is to aspire to do much and to do it and then to discover it was not worth the doing. That is truth right there. And so, the poem. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth by things gained in store. He sized me up by the scars that I bore. I counted honors and sought degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew till one day by the grave how vain are the things that we spend life to save. Man, I just hurt for so many of us here that are spending everything you got on something that's going to be gone. And I just rejoice in so many of you that are spending the life you have on that which lasts forever and ever and ever. It's the grace of God. Thank him every day if that be your story. If you're without Christ, come to the cross. It's his righteousness that satisfies. Come to him. Seek his forgiveness. Let him give you the gift of his righteousness. Don't try to earn it. It won't work. Receive the righteousness of Christ that comes from the cross. That's the good news. If you're a Christian, come out. Use our closing prayer to say, God, forgive me. I repent. I'll push your way. That is my intention as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for granting to us truth so we can see life from a much better perspective than having to simply learn by experience. We pray for every young person here, every child, that they would learn to identify the harlot Though she be so attractive on the exterior, may they see with sight given of you. May they have wisdom beyond their years. May they have insight beyond their age. Our Father in heaven, I pray for those of us as Christians that have been enticed of late by the harlot in so many different expressions. We now say, forgive us, we're sorry. We apologize, we repent, we turn. And Lord, we would turn to you as our satisfaction, even the cross of Christ that gives us your righteousness. And Lord, we pray for those that would be in a mode now of seeking answers to questions, not in true faith of you, that even now they would find their heart strangely open before you, saying, I receive you now. Come into my heart. Be my master. I take on your righteousness, not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done on the cross And it is my pledge of intention to follow you all the days of my life. 
We thank you for this and we pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen.